Welcome to the Diabetes What to Know podcast, where we talk to diabetes experts about how to live a long, healthy life with diabetes. We have a very special episode for you tonight with endocrinologist Dr. Enrique Caballero talking about what people with type 2 diabetes should know about heart health. Dr. Caballero, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Hi, Ansley. Thank you for having me in your show again. So let's start off by talking about why our topic tonight is such an important one. Why does heart health matter so much for people with diabetes? Well, the, the most important reason is because cardiovascular disease, heart disease, is very common in people with diabetes and, in fact, is the number one cause of death uh, in people with diabetes. Uh, statistics show that 75% of people with diabetes will unfortunately die from cardiovascular disease. So everyone needs to know that diabetes is closely linked to cardiovascular disease. So let's do a couple of definitions here. What, what is included when we talk about heart disease? Well, so cardiovascular disease or heart disease obviously relates to the heart. And the traditional concept in everyone's mind is that heart disease means the lack of circulation or the blocking of the circulation in the arteries that bring the blood to the heart. And that's what would lead to a heart attack or what people have heard about angina, for example. And that's true. That's one type of cardiovascular disease. That is usually to the blocking of the circulation. We call that atherosclerosis, which means that the arteries are getting harder and harder and they block over time. And then the flow of the blood is, is, is not appropriate. Um, and that continues to be a major problem in people with diabetes. But there's other types of cardiovascular disease that people don't usually have in their mind. For example, if someone has a stroke, that's also sort of cardiovascular disease because it's related to the circulation. And so that's another complication that we unfortunately see in patients with diabetes. Now, there's another entity called peripheral vascular disease. And that means that the circulation in the periphery, that mostly means in the extremities and the legs, could be affected. And that's something that also can happen in people with uncontrolled diabetes over time. And that relates to the lack of circulation at the level of the legs. And that's when people would see that they, of course, may develop uh, ulcers, infections, and sometimes that, along with neuropathy, which is the affection of the nerves, may lead, unfortunately, to amputations and, and many problems. So that's another type of cardiovascular disease. But there's one, Asley, that I think it's important for everyone to really also know about, and that's what we call heart failure. And uh, there's the the, the one called congestive heart failure, which means that the heart is not able to pump the blood out of its chambers, and therefore the blood accumulates uh, in the circulation uh, in the heart and all the, the veins that are uh, bringing the blood to the, to the heart. And that provides or creates problems in the lungs, for example, people have a difficulty in breathing, they have shortness of breath, they get tired very easily, so the heart is not able to function properly. Now, someone may have heart failure because of the blocking of the circulation, so that is coronary artery disease or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease could be the reason for heart failure, but there are people who have clean arteries, circulation is perfect, 
yet they have heart failure. And that is because the heart muscle may get affected from diabetes and other conditions that happen frequently, like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, etc. And the, the muscle in the heart fails over time. So when we talk about cardiovascular disease, it's not just one single entity. It could be different ways in which the heart can be affected in people with diabetes. So is every person with type 2 diabetes at risk for these problems that you're talking about, or are certain people more likely to have issues? Yeah, so we'll hear some good news and bad news. So the, the good news is that it's not just diabetes itself. It is when diabetes is not well controlled, and what that means is that the blood sugars have been elevated for quite some time. That usually leads to any of the complications um, that can affect the heart. Uh, but also, and this is the bad news, is not just diabetes only, but the, the, the bad friends that diabetes brings with it. And that is, for example, being uh, overweight or have obesity, having high blood pressure, having high cholesterol, and smoking, which of course is not related to diabetes per se, but if someone happens to smoke, those are the five major enemies of the heart. So again, uncontrolled diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, overweight or obesity, and smoking. So the more risk factors for heart disease someone has, and the less well controlled these factors are, of course, the higher the risk for cardiovascular disease. And we're talking about the lack of circulation to the heart, strokes, peripheral vascular disease, or what we call heart failure as well. So my next question for you was going to be, how might someone watching at home know if this is something that they need to be concerned about? But what I hear you saying is, those are kind of the five risk factors that someone can think about, do these things apply to me? That, that's correct. And I think that what people need to, to really know is that working on controlling all these factors is going to be important. Now, if someone has symptoms that would suggest that there's already a problem, of course, they need to go to the doctor and then try to assess whether cardiovascular disease is already present. So for example, how would someone know if the heart is already having lack of circulation that could lead to a heart attack or what we call angina? Well, most people may have some chest pain, shortness of breath, something that is very typical. The problem is that sometimes the circulation could be affected and people may not have the typical symptoms. Sometimes it's just a little bit of, you know, tiredness and shortness of breath and lack of the um, ability to exercise, things like that. Um, it doesn't mean that people need to go and have stress tests all the time or a very sophisticated uh, test to identify this. In fact, we don't recommend everybody to have a test just to see if the circulation is fine, because at the end, the recommendation is going to be the same. Control these five risk factors. Control your diabetes, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your weight, and don't smoke. Um, however, if someone has symptoms, of course, they need to go and see their doctor, and they will decide whether a specific test is, is um, really uh, ordered. But I think it's really more about trying to be sure that these five enemies are under control. Okay, Dr. Caballero, let's talk more about the good news. What are some of the things that people with type 2 diabetes can do to lower their risk of heart issues? Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about the five enemies again, because I want everybody to remember that these are the ones that we need to, to beat. These are the ones that we need to fight uh, really effectively. So diabetes needs to be under good control. That's number one. Now, what does that mean? It means that the blood sugars are at an acceptable level. 
How would people know that that's happening? Well, they need to go to their doctor and get the test called A1C or glycohemoglobin A1C. It's a blood test that is usually performed every three months or so. And that tells us whether the blood sugars have been at a good level for the last three months. The goal is to have an A1C under 7% in general, although your doctor may actually tell you what your specific goal is. And I think that's really important. Um, and then in order to really get the A1C to a good level, there's really four things that everybody needs to do. And by the way, these apply to helping the other, you know, aspects that we're discussing. So one, and we can talk more about that is nutrition, you know, proper meal plan, physical activity, testing their blood sugars to know where they are, and obviously sometimes medications. And there are so many different medications for diabetes, but these are the four strategies to control diabetes. Now let's talk about enemy number two, and that's hypertension. So blood pressure needs to be under good control as well. In people with diabetes in general, we want the blood pressure to be under 130 over 80 most of the time. And again, for this lifestyle modification, a good meal plan, exercise, and sometimes taking medications can help. Enemy number three is high cholesterol and what we call lipids, which are fats in the blood, because cholesterol is not the only one. There's also uh, triglycerides that could be elevated from sugar. They're formed from sugar. Uh, but the typical one is LDL or the bad cholesterol. And we want that to be as low as possible. Uh, in general, we want LDL cholesterol to be under 100 milligrams per deciliter. Sometimes we want that to be under 70 or even lower depending on how high the risk is for cardiovascular disease. Or if someone already had heart disease, we want that LDL cholesterol to be, again, even lower than that. Talk to your doctor and you know discuss uh, what the goal would be. But again, how to control cholesterol? Same thing, good nutrition, exercise, and specific medications for cholesterol. Enemy number four is weight. So if there's overweight or obesity, then now we know that obesity is closely linked to the development of cardiovascular disease, independent from the presence of the other enemy. So just by being overweight or having obesity, there's a higher risk of developing cardiovascular problems. So maintaining the weight at the best level possible is important. But here, Ansley, I think it's important for people to remember that you don't need to lose you know, 50 pounds or 100 pounds in order to see the benefit. That's something that can happen even with five, per, five or 10% of weight loss. And what, how do you do that? Same thing, good meal plan, exercise, and again, in some cases, medications for, for weight. And enemy number five is smoking. Very simple recommendation, not smoking. Or if someone smokes and has smoked for a long time, reducing the amount of cigarettes would be important, but honestly, the best thing is not to smoke and it's never too late. Some people say, well, I've been smoking for so many years. What's the point? Well, there's always the possibility of helping the circulation by stopping smoking. That raises an interesting question, which is, I know there are a lot of people with diabetes out there who feel like, you know, my blood sugar has been high. My A1C has been high for so long. There's no point in trying to do the work, you know, to, to, to fix it now. Talk about why no matter what, it, it's still a good time to focus on our health. It is true that the earlier the intervention, the earlier we control, 
uh, diabetes, the better the prognosis is. Uh, because all the time that the body is exposed to what we call hyperglycemia, which are high blood sugar levels, of course, the higher the risk of different organs being affected from that elevation of the blood sugars. But the good news is that it's really never too late to see an improvement. Now, to be very honest, if someone already has some complications from diabetes, we cannot say that by controlling diabetes, the complications will go away. But something that we can say is that there is a lower chance of those complications to advance to later stages, more advanced disease. And that makes a big difference. For example, it's not the same if someone had a mild heart attack versus someone that has a massive heart attack. It's not the same if someone has incipient or initial kidney problems versus someone having end-stage renal disease that requires hemodialysis, going to the hospital very frequently, et cetera. So there's always the possibility of reducing the risk of progression by intervening in diabetes control. So it doesn't really matter how long it's been there. It's always important to do something about it. So there's a lot of controversy around what foods can improve heart health and which foods should be avoided. So take us through the basics of what we know today about food and the impact that different foods can have on our heart health. How many hours do we have to answer this question? Because <laughs> there's so much information out there about nutrition and you know what a good diet is and, and not a good diet. Uh, but I'll try to make it very simple. I think that most of the studies that are related to cardiovascular disease have identified, for example, the Mediterranean diet as the most uh, appropriate one, the healthiest one uh, that could reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease in people with diabetes, in people without diabetes, and basically in everyone. Now, what is it? I don't think it's a huge secret. A Mediterranean diet is that that integrates really a lot of vegetables. Uh, and I always you know, tell my patients, you know, follow the plate method. And that is that if you have the plate in front of you divided, imaginarily, you know, in, in, in two halves, one half is all vegetables, salads, anything that you like, that should be in there. And the nice thing about it is that there's no limit. You can eat as many vegetables as you want. Um, now, one interesting thing about the Mediterranean diet is to use, for example, olive oil. Uh, and uh, extra virgin olive oil in particular, which I think would be very beneficial. Be careful with you know, all the dressings because uh, that could also have a lot of fat and not all of them are very healthy. So the healthier the dressing, the better for, for the salad. And then in the other half, what the Mediterranean diet is also calling for are uh, a good source of protein and usually lean protein. And that is, for example, chicken, fish, or lean meat, and that's okay. But there's also protein um, that comes from plants. So uh, this could be, for example, lentils, uh, beans, uh, chickpeas, and uh, tofu, for example. All those could be good sources of protein. And then in just one quarter of the plate, that's where the carbohydrates should go. And those are, you know, anything could be like rice, or it could be potatoes, or it could be, you know, any other starches. But the problem is that we don't usually eat in those amounts. We usually eat a lot more carbohydrates. And uh, so that would be the recommendation, just one quarter of the plate. And then to have water instead of sodas, and then have a fruit, for example, as dessert if needed, and to avoid juices, because juices, and I 
hear that from my patients all the time. Oh, I'm drinking juices. That should be okay, right? Because they come from fruits and fruits are good. And I always say, no, 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 no. The juice is only the, 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 the sugar that comes from the fruits. It's better to eat the fruit because it also has the fiber and not just uh, the juices. So that is in general what the Mediterranean diet is, is considering. Also, for example, the uh, nuts uh, could be also used as snacks in between the meals. Now, be careful because of course, nuts have a, may have a lot of calories as well. So in moderation, but that could be a healthier snack rather than eating cookies or bread or anything that could actually raise the blood sugars. But Ansley, one of the key things, because I know that the audience may be from so many different cultures and ethnicities and parts of the country and the world perhaps, is how to create a diet that is culturally appropriate. And that's not easy because not everybody may be familiar with the Mediterranean diet. But what I said about the plate method applies to actually everybody. Because if you think about salads and vegetables, and then your source of protein and the healthier the source of protein, the better, and just carbohydrates in moderation with water instead of sugary drinks and with a fruit instead of juices, for example, that actually would work for almost everybody because you can create your own meals uh, with your own cultural background. But if you follow those general recommendations, I think that could work for almost everybody. Oh, that's so helpful. What about alcohol? What do the latest studies show about whether kind of moderate alcohol consumption is good for our hearts? I know that some people may say, okay, I want to know how much alcohol I can drink. Uh, well, the recommendation is truly probably one drink or two drinks uh, a day for a woman or for a man, respectively. Um, and that doesn't seem to create too many problems. There's honestly controversy as to whether that reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease. I know that's been around for a long time saying, oh, if you drink small amounts of alcohol, you will really have a lower chance of developing cardiovascular disease. Not all the studies have shown that. That's why we, for example, as healthcare professionals, do not recommend drinking alcohol to prevent cardiovascular disease. So if someone doesn't drink, it doesn't mean that that person needs to start drinking to prevent cardiovascular disease. But if someone drinks, limiting the amount of alcohol to, again, one drink or two drinks for a woman or for a man, I think that would be probably the best way to go. With the specific recommendation that as some patients say, can I put them all during the weekend <laughs> instead of one per day? Can I have seven during the weekend? And the answer is no, 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 no. That does not work that way. So we know exercise is one of the best things we can do for our health overall. Are there certain types of exercise that have been shown to be especially beneficial for lowering our risk of heart disease or heart issues in the future? The answer, Ansley, is exercise is great for all these enemies uh, that can affect the heart, diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, weight, of course, and actually smoking, for example, if people can, you know, exercise more, I'm sure that it's going to be easier to stop smoking as well. So how much exercise and what type of exercise? Well, the general recommendations is to engage in about 150 minutes of exercise per week. And that is about 30 minutes, five days of the week, at least. If people can do more than that, that's great, but that would be sort of the minimum. Now, the nice thing about exercise is that you don't have to do actually 30 minutes at once. The studies show that you could do 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, equally beneficial. 
You can do 10 minutes in the morning, 10 in the afternoon, and 10 at night, equally beneficial. But you have to really engage in regular physical activity. Now, everybody's different. We cannot say that it's the same type of exercise for everybody. For older individuals, maybe choose walking is more than enough. And we've seen in many of the studies that that creates a big benefit in reducing the risk for many different problems, including cardiovascular disease. For younger individuals that may be able to do more different types of activities, well, you know, you can pick, you can swim, you can run, you can play sport, you can go up and down the stairs, whatever you can do, but you know, it's important to be active. One specific recommendation, and that is something that everybody needs to check with their own physician, is to what extent you can exercise. Because you want to be careful that if you already have heart disease or a problem, then you're not going to increase the risk of having further problems. But if someone is able to exercise, a moderate to vigorous exercise would qualify as if you notice that your heart rate is increasing. And sometimes sounds like we use the the, the, the talk test. And that is that, you know, if you're walking and you can have a normal conversation with someone that you're walking with, that's a very mild walk. Now, if you are feeling that you can't talk constantly, because again, your body is now working harder and you feel that your heart rate is increasing and you cannot have a formal or normal conversation with someone else, that's the type of exercise that you want to have. As long as, of course, you know that you can do that type of exercise. So if you can include that and you can do about 30 minutes uh, a day of that exercise, it would be great. And two final points about exercise. Now we know that, for example, strengthening exercises, muscle uh, you know, building exercises could be very beneficial because there's not always just the aerobic or cardiovascular exercise that people may be attracted to. And that's okay. Going to the gym and lifting weights and all that, that could be beneficial as well. And perhaps a combination. And the last type is the stretching exercises, you know, yoga and other things that can help with joints and mobility and, and the muscles could also be very beneficial as well. I always recommend my patients to combine different types of exercise. And I think that that's probably the best way to go. So let's talk about that third component of diabetes management, which you mentioned earlier, which is of course medications. If a person with diabetes has been diagnosed with heart issues, are there certain diabetes medications that they should ask their doctor about? Yes, there are two classes now that have been um, well demonstrated that can reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease and for renal disease as well uh, in some cases. So one is the class called SGLT2 inhibitors. These are tablets that are taken once a day and that they help control diabetes, control blood sugars. But it was seen in the studies that these medications may also reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease. Specifically, for example, um, heart failure. This has been a very consistent finding with the use of these medications that the risk of heart failure could be reduced with uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. And also in some cases, uh, the possibility of developing a heart attack as well. Uh, and kidney disease has also been uh, seen that can be helped with the SGLT2 inhibitors. Now, not everybody is a candidate for this medication. So I would recommend talk to your doctor and then ask whether you could qualify for these medication. 
The other class that has been shown to reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease is called GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, there are different members of this class. Most of them are injectable medications, although there's one that is oral medication now. And they work in a different way from the SGLT2 inhibitors, but they have also shown to reduce the risk for cardiovascular disease. And they can also help with weight loss. Um, SGLT2 inhibitors can do that as well, but GLP-1 receptor agonists can do that much better. And that's why they have become also very popular. Both classes are great. Um, they have their own precautions and contraindications and potential side effects. So this is something that needs to, of course, re, uh, you know, need to be discussed with uh, their healthcare providers to see if they qualify. One of the challenges that is getting better now is coverage because these are expensive medications because they are relatively new in the market. So some people may have access to these medications, but in some cases that may not be happening um, as frequently as we would like. So discussing that with the healthcare providers, I think is the best way to go. Dr. Caballero, let's talk a little bit more about blood pressure and LDL cholesterol. You mentioned them earlier. Let's talk about blood pressure first. Should people with diabetes who've been told they have high blood pressure, should they be measuring blood pressure, monitoring it at home? The answer is yes. Uh, and uh, we are now moving into that direction uh, more, more frequently. And the reason is that when people go to the doctor's office to have their blood pressure checked, there's so many factors that may influence the result of that blood pressure reading. Uh, there are patients that you know have to rush to the to the office, and there's the white coat syndrome that you know people get nervous because the doctor is there, and the blood pressure can increase. That's a very well studied phenomenon. Now we also need to really have some more formal ways to check the blood pressure in the office. So for example, it's not just once, maybe three different times, get an average, not to check the blood pressure immediately after the patient got to the clinic, but maybe wait for at least five minutes in a quiet room, et cetera. And to be very honest, that may or may not happen all the time. But even if it happens uh, in, in the right way, that is just one measurement in, I don't know what, three months maybe since the blood pressure was checked last. So that is not representative of what happens all the time. So we now recommend it if people have high blood pressure to ask their healthcare providers whether they qualify, and most people will actually, uh, qualify for a blood pressure monitor. And there are so many different ones, not all of them are validated. So I think they need to check with their healthcare providers as to what is a good blood pressure device, but the doctors may prescribe that and then they would get that at home. And checking the blood pressure at different times uh, during the day, maybe not always at the same time every day, several times during the week and bring those results to the um, appointment with their doctor is gonna be very informative. I always thank my patients when they do that because I have a much better idea as to what may be happening with their blood pressure. And it's easier for me to make a decision in terms of adjusting medications and correcting some things that may not be doing, may, may not be going that well, as opposed to just looking at one reading during the visit. And honestly, it's a little bit of a blind procedure because I don't know if that's really happening uh, during uh, all the other days before the, the appointment. And if you think about that, this is the same thing that we're doing with diabetes now. That is not just the A1C, it's also 
glucose patterns. That's why testing blood sugars at home is so important. And now that we have what we call the continuous glucose monitors that can give us information almost about the blood sugars every minute or every five minutes, it's wonderful because now we have a much better idea as to what is happening with the blood sugars, with blood pressure at home, and it's easier for us to make some recommendations that make sense to that particular patient. So we talked about blood pressure and LDL cholesterol as numbers that people with diabetes definitely want to keep an eye on. Are there other important cardiovascular numbers that we should be watching or asking our doctor to check? Well, so I think, again, the, the, the key ones are A1C for diabetes, uh, blood pressure uh, on its own, LDL cholesterol. Uh, but remember that in terms of lipids or fats in the blood, there's two other ones that people need to know about. One is LDL cholesterol is the bad cholesterol, but there's, there's a good cholesterol, and that's called HDL cholesterol. And in this case, the higher the HDL cholesterol, the better. It seems to be a protective factor for cardiovascular disease. So everyone needs to ask their physicians, how's my HDL cholesterol? Uh, because that may actually be something that honestly is genetically determined. It's very difficult to change that level. But if you have a good HDL cholesterol, that's actually great because that may be something that may be a protective factor. And the other one, Ansley, it's called a triglycerides. So these are fats that are formed from sugar and um, they may also participate in the blocking of the circulation. There's still controversy about that, but there are now some studies that suggest that the lower the triglycerides, the better for cardiovascular disease. The good news is that as diabetes is controlled, triglyceride levels also get under uh, better control and that reduces the risk for cardiovascular disease. Those are the key numbers along with, of course, weight. You know, and we usually do two things in this space of weight. One is the weight itself in pounds or kilograms. And so people need to know what the goal should be. Sometimes we look at what we call the body mass index or BMI, which takes into consideration weight and height, but also something that not a lot of people actually do, which is to measure the waist circumference. Because we have uh, recommended people that if they want to be healthier, they need to lose weight. But if they're also exercising, it could be that they may actually be building muscle. So weight itself may not be the best indicator of that change. So measuring the waist circumference is a very practical uh, way to assess how this is happening because ultimately, and unfortunately, it is the fat in the belly, in the abdomen that is closely linked to diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So the lower our waist circumference of course, the higher the benefit in reducing all these uh, complications from diabetes. Dr. Caballero, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been such an informative conversation as always. Thank you for having me, Ansley. We will be back to you with a new episode in a few weeks. Until then, please stay safe and take good care. Good night.